Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, Senior Editor, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's program, could light beams be the answer to heartbeat irregularities? For the very first time in history, we've published results demonstrating that in a mouse heart, this light-based defibrillation works. A new cryptocurrency is launched. Is there a chance we will be turning our backs on Bitcoin? I doubt it. But the technology could be very interesting. And later, whether you're passionate about Pinot or swoon over Shiraz, how do you feel about blending your own wine via touchscreens? Anything that encourages people to go for a greater variety in the vast taste of wine is to be encouraged. But first, could beams of light replace electric shocks when it comes to deadly heart problems? Well, that's exactly what researchers at John Hopkins University and the University of Bonn have been looking into. Using high-tech human heart models and experimenting on mice, their research shows that short bursts of red light stops ventricular tachycardia, a malfunctioning heartbeat that can lead to sudden cardiac death. The idea for the research sprang from advances in the field of optogenetics, and Patrick Boyle, assistant research professor at John Hopkins University, has been explaining exactly what optogenetics is. The basic idea of optogenetics is that cells can be induced to express proteins that occur naturally in animals like algae, and those proteins respond to light. So when they're illuminated, they undergo a transformation that allows for current to pass across the cell membrane, and when that type of protein is expressed in a neuron or a heart cell, the cell becomes excited. And so if it's a neuron, it transmits excitation to other neurons. And if it's a heart cell, it contracts. So what's currently available to patients at risk of ventricular tachycardia? In patients who are predisposed to cardiac arrhythmias, they'll have a device implanted, an ICD, which stands for Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator. And that device is very much like a pacemaker. But instead of pacing constantly the way a pacemaker does, an ICD will wait, listen, and try to detect when the heart has entered a lethal fibrillatory state, and then deliver a strong electric shock in order to reset the rhythm of the heart into a normal perfusing rhythm. ICDs do work in terms of saving people's lives. We would never dare to to question that. But when a person receives a defibrillation shock, it can be extremely painful. People describe being shocked like being kicked in the chest by a horse, like being hit in the back with a baseball bat. And the reason for that is because electric shocks engage all of the musculature around the heart, the diaphragm, the chest muscles, the muscles in the lower back, and cause them to contract abruptly and violently at the same time as the heart is being defibrillated. How can optogenetics offer an alternative? So we worked in collaboration with uh, Philip Sauce's lab at the University of Bonn, and our collaborators there used mice in which chanorodopsin, an optogenetic protein, was expressed in the heart. And what they showed was that when they put the heart into a fibrillatory state, a bright 
pulse of light successfully reset the rhythm of the heart in the mice. So that's an interesting conclusion, but what we know from our previous work is that it might not necessarily translate to humans. The size of a mouse heart is about the same as the size of the nail on your pinky finger. And what we know about light that's used to defibrillate those mouse hearts is that especially blue light penetrates really poorly in living tissue. And so what we found previously is that it might be very difficult to translate this type of therapy into applications in larger hearts. What we did at Johns Hopkins was we took an existing model of a patient's heart who had experienced a heart attack and was predisposed to ventricular arrhythmias. And we essentially repeated the same set of experiments, only virtually. And what we found was that optogenetic defibrillation could work in the heart of this patient who experienced ventricular tachycardias related to a previous heart attack, but it would require a different type of light. It would require a longer wavelength red light, which is known to penetrate deeper in living tissue. Could this be used in emergency situations then? We don't envision it necessarily at this point as something that could happen in such a bang-bang way. The process of transfection takes time. The way that we foresee this potentially working for clinical applications would be for a patient at high risk for developing arrhythmias, such as these patients who would normally have an ICD implanted. They would receive a treatment in order to light sensitize the heart and then theoretically a device would be implanted in order to deliver light to the light-sensitized heart. But I should stress that this is still probably at least a decade away from being at a place where we would be comfortable testing it. And that's the power of the simulations, because in this case, we have a very, very exciting experimental result. For the very first time in history, we've published results demonstrating that in a mouse heart, this light-based defibrillation works. But now, instead of working on rats, rabbits, dogs, pigs, any other kind of animal, we can take that conclusion from the experimental side and look forward using the power of the virtual heart models that we build here and say, okay, in a real patient with a real heart condition in whom this would actually be a reasonable treatment if it could be feasible, would it work? And is it worth exploring as a technological avenue? But like I said, there's still probably about a decade of very difficult scientific and engineering work involved in potentially making that a reality. Still a decade away, but exciting results. Many thanks to Patrick Boyle. Last week on Babbage, we discussed the possibilities of the U.S. election being hacked, and security expert Bruce Schneier examined the vulnerabilities in electoral voting systems. Matthew Warner was listening during his morning yoga, and he says, I realise that Trump is right. The election can be rigged easily. And yes, technology should step in to solve the issue. Blockchain could help the tallying and network vulnerabilities. And Stephen Milton got in touch to say, Do blockchain developments offer a secure option? It is good enough for handling money, and it is anonymous. Well, Matthew and Stephen, keep listening. We'll be turning our attention to cryptocurrencies and blockchain in just a moment. But Scott Taylor also got in touch to simply say, quote, I bet you could wirelessly hack into Donald Trump's hair, unquote. No, there's some things that are impenetrable. <clears throat> anyway, don't forget you can send us your feedback, your comments and thoughts about all the issues discussed in Babbage on our Facebook page or on our Twitter account at Economist Radio. And reach us by email, radio at economist.com. Previously on Babbage, we've discussed cryptocurrencies, the technology behind Bitcoin. Now there's a new kid on the cryptocurrency block. It's called Zcash. Although it's based on the code of the rival Bitcoin, it can be minted more quickly. 
it can handle transactions faster, and it protects privacy better. But in a world of open-source software, how much of a rival to the established altcoins will it prove to be? Here to tell us more is technology editor Ludwig Siegela. Hello, Ludwig. Hello, Ken. There are already several forms of cryptocurrencies. Why does the world need another? I mean, several is an understatement. There are hundreds of different cryptocurrencies, I would say, not altcoins. Altcoins is kind of a derogatory term describing knockoffs of Bitcoin, kind of minor tweaks, but not really different. Zcash we're talking here now is substantially different from both Bitcoin and kind of the other competitor, Ethereum. And so what are the central differences? The central difference is that other than the stuff you've mentioned, faster mining, faster confirmation times of transactions, it's mainly that it's more private. There's more privacy. People kind of think Bitcoin, that's a lot of crypto stuff. So it's encrypted and you wouldn't be able to tell what happens. But the blockchain, which is kind of this big ledger that keeps track of all the Bitcoins, if you can mine that, you can look at that with special software and you can kind of see what's happening. And if people are not careful, you can even identify the sender of money or the recipient of money. So what Zcash does is puts a layer on top of that that obscures or anonymizes all the transactions. So you will not be able to tell who sends what money, who who receives money. And the way they're doing is by using what's known as zero-knowledge proofs. And zero-knowledge here refers to the fact that you can prove that something is wrong, for example, that you own a certain amount of Bitcoin or Zcash in that case, but without revealing what you actually own. So it's a veil or shield that protects your privacy. Now, all of these cryptocurrencies entail trade-offs. What are some of the drawbacks of Zcash? Yes, actually, that's one reason. I mean, back to your first question, one reason why there are so many, kind of there's different trade-offs. And in this case, it's a currency that focuses on privacy. That makes it uh, harder to mine. You need more computing cycles to do that. It takes more space. Of course, there are all kinds of philosophical problems. So if you d- can't tell the transaction or shield it, you could theoretically create lots of coins if you can hack the system without anybody ever realizing what's what's happening. Stuff like that. That's the drawback. The other drawback is, is more kind of a security drawback. So if regulators kind of like Bitcoin because they can actually see what's happening or to some extent see what's happening, In the case of uh, Zcash, they couldn't. So that may may make it have heaven for drug dealers or or money launderers. So why are you writing about it? If there's hundreds, you have your choice of what to choose and what not to choose to write about. Clearly, you think there's something special about this one. Maybe it'll be more adopted or it should be taken seriously for some other reasons. The reason I I wrote about it is, A, the people who do it are kind of well-known in the community. So if they do something, I think it's interesting. One reason why... Banks are kind of hesitant to adopt blockchain technology is that actually it's not anonymous. So if they share a ledger, let's say a bunch of investment banks share a ledger rather than having their own databases, they could see theoretically what's happening, what the other banks are doing, trading strategies, or could guess the identity of the customers. And so that's why banks don't want to use this technology. So by introducing this type of zero-knowledge proof, that could make that type of technology actually more attractive to banks. And that's what the company Zcash, there's a currency, but there's also a company that operates the system, wants to do, sell that type of technology to banks. And do you think they're going to be successful? Will these new features of its governance and technical model be enough to get people to adopt it? Again, I think there's a difference between uh, Zcash, the currency, and Zcash, the company. The currency, there's so many of these. It may be successful. It may be kind of an object of, I mean, there's speculation already going on. I mean, when it first started trading, it was worth 
thousand dollars. I think I don't know. It's now a thousand. It's ridiculous. So it's gone down by. It's eight, yeah. It's eight gonna, and it will continue okay. to go down. But will it be successful? Yes, some will use it. We'll see. Will it supplant Bitcoin? I doubt it. But the technology could be very interesting, and they could actually be quite successful selling that to banks in the same way we use now encryption for browsers. And that that could become kind of the standard for this type of encryption. Well, listen, Ludwig, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ken. It's a common problem. If you order a bottle of wine in a restaurant, you take your first sip and you instantly regret your choice. But a new invention is hoping to rid us of our vino woes. It's a wine mixing machine that lets drinkers create a glass blended to their personal taste. It's called Vinfusion. It eliminates the need for guesswork or the repetition of simply sticking with a well-tried favorite. And Paul Marks has been looking into Vinfusion for this week's edition of The Economist. Paul, welcome. Thank you. So the technology was created by Cambridge Consultants, a British technology company. Britain is not really known for its wine prowess. But let me ask, how does the technology work? Well, what the company decided to do was a survey of consumers to see what people actually experience when they order wine in a bar, a restaurant or a pub. What they did was analyze the important chemicals in wine and work out which wines you could mix to make a vast variety of flavors that most people will like. Basically, instead of having what the connoisseur would have, slightly posh descriptions of wine as raspberry notes and elderflower aftertastes with a prune flourish, they worked out a way of describing wine in very simple terms, how you might just say, oh, I fancy something light, a bit full-bodied maybe, or something dry. And basically on a touch screen, you just choose on a slider various scales of different flavours and the machine takes four base wines and melds you a wine to your taste, hopefully. So it's basically like taking the wines as primary colours and then mixing it to the colour that you want. That's right, yeah. Those are a Chilean Pinot, a Chilean Merlot, an Australian Shiraz, three reds, and a white sweet wine, French Muscat, which you add sweetness with. And they reckon you can get, theoretically, up to 4,000 different tastes. Not that humans can recognise anything like that. So what's the technology involved? They basically went right back to the chemicals in the wine and worked out which wines can be mixed. And that involves deep chemistry, gas chromatography, working out what is in the actual aroma, what's called the headspace above the wine, the bit the connoisseur puts their nose in. And the chemicals there are very important. You can only blend wines that have the same chemicals in that headspace, very similar chemicals. If they have a very different aroma, you can't blend them and get anything that tastes half decent. So they had to be very careful about the wines they ended up with as their primary colours. Now, what will the traditional wine enthusiasts say about this technology? I spoke to Roberto Vicente, who, who works in the Rioja region in northern Spain. He encourages people to blend their own wines at home. And he thinks it's great. He says anything that encourages people to go for a, a greater variety in the vast taste of wine, is to be encouraged. Do you think the day will ever come when we stop selecting our old favourite and that everyone is blending wines using this technology? I doubt it very much, but I think what this could do is introduce an awful lot of people to wines that haven't actually enjoyed it to date. The survey showed 70% of people don't actually like what they're getting, and 62% of people really would like the chance to customise wine. So it looks like there really ought to be some way around it. Well, Paul Marks, thanks for joining me on the show. Cheers. Cheers. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read any of the articles discussed this week, pick up a forthcoming issue. In London, this is The Economist. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.